Would you ask God to speak to you right now? Say, God, speak to me. Speak to me by the power of your spirit. Would you ask that God would give you ears to hear and a heart to believe and obey all that he says? And would you ask that God would prepare your heart in such a way today that you would leave this room ready to see your king ready to stand before your God, ready to live for the glory of his kingdom and name. Father, we're praying that we would not merely read about an encounter a man had with you, whether it was Isaiah in the year that King Uzziah died, whether it was Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel and the year that he had this dream we'll study about or whether it was any other man at any other time God we pray that we would encounter you today that we would hear your voice and respond and obey so fill us we pray by the power of your Holy Spirit and Father I ask that the Spirit of God would be our teacher today Lord I am not capable at all in my own strength to teach your word and so Father take this moment that follows like you took that little boy's sack lunch and you used its smallness and its feebleness to feed a multitude. God, I pray that would be our experience today. Multiply by your grace the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart. And Father, we're not the only church in town and we want to see the kingdom of God spread among the people of this community. And Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters who are gathered in churches all over this community. Specifically, we pray for New Covenant Fellowship in Titusville and Pastor Sandy Robertson. Lord, I'm thankful for his faithfulness. I'm thankful for his commitment to lead your people over these decades and invest his life in the mission of Jesus. And so God, I pray that Pastor Sandy Robertson would Experience the fullness of your spirit and may he boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus today to your people. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen, amen. If you have your Bibles, I wanna encourage you to go ahead and turn to Daniel chapter two, Daniel chapter two. We're gonna continue our study of the book of Daniel this morning. And I, I wanna let you know, on the front end, that we're going to do something a little bit different with our sermons during the study of Daniel. Normally, we always put these sermons online for you to view, whether it's uh, the video or even to go back on the podcasts and listen to the audio. Uh, but we will be putting um, my sermon transcripts next to those uh, links on our website so that with if you want to go back and, and study the notes that I've prepared and look back over the transcripts of our sermons, I know that in the future especially, but even in the last couple of weeks, there have been a lot of references to a lot of different things. And there's been some of you who've asked for that, uh, whether I'd be willing to share those notes with you. I'm glad to share anything that I've got. And so those notes will be on the uh, website. And that's going to be particularly helpful, I believe, 
when we hit the, the middle section of the book of Daniel, and we're going to be studying a lot about prophetic events and future things in the, the kingdom of God and his work among the kingdoms of men. And so I really think that it'll be helpful if you can come to this room and know that you don't have to furiously take notes before they exit the slides on the screen. Um, you can go back through the week and download those off of our website. So that's something that you can anticipate and just check in throughout the week if you're interested in that. And in case you haven't been here the last couple of weeks during these first uh, couple studies of the book of Daniel, let me just catch you up to speed really quickly. Daniel and his three friends were uh, four young Jewish men from the city of Jerusalem who had been taken captive by the Babylonian king whose name was Nebuchadnezzar. That happened in the year 605 BC. And when they were brought to live in Babylon, what happened is they began to experience a lot of cultural pressure by the people and the leaders of Babylon to abandon the way of life that God had prescribed in his word and adopt the pagan way of life that we find in the nation of Babylon. And so they're under this this pressure culturally to adopt the norms of a pagan godless culture. And so we've talked about that for the first couple of weeks. The book of Daniel then becomes a vivid representation of the kind of conflict that we are in and God's people have always been in and will always be in until Jesus comes again. A conflict between living for the kingdom of God as you live among the kingdoms of men. And last week what we saw is that Nebuchadnezzar, the leader of the kingdoms of men, the kingdom of Babylon, had this dream that deeply disturbed him. He lost a lot of sleep over it, so he gathered his magicians and wise men from his nation to gather around him. And he gave them this order. Tell me the interpretation of my dream. Tell me what my dream means. But then he did this really tricky move on them. He said, I'm not going to tell you what my dream was. You'll have to tell me what my dream was so that I can trust that you're not trying to pull the wool over my eyes. If you can tell me what I dreamed without me telling you, then I know I can trust that you have been given wisdom for the interpretation. Of course, you can imagine none of the wise men of Babylon were able to do that because no man could do that. Only God could do something, something like that. And that's exactly what God did. God showed up and he gave Daniel a vision or an ability to see the dream that he had given to Nebuchadnezzar along with its interpretation. And so that's where we're picking up this morning. We're going to look at the dream Nebuchadnezzar had and we'll look at its interpretation in Daniel chapter 2. Let's pick up where we left off last week in verse 31. Verse 31 says this, Daniel is speaking to Nebuchadnezzar. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces." Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image 
became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Let's stop right there. Okay, so here's this mysterious dream that kept the most powerful man in the entire world up at night. He saw a great image that scared him to death. Now, that word image is often translated as statue in the Old Testament. It's also the word that is describing an idol that would be carved by human hands. When God says, don't make any graven images, it's that word, image. So it's an idol made by human hands. It's a statue made by human hands. And so he has this vision of a huge statue made by human hands. And And so I want to give you a little picture of that statue. Here's an artist's rendering of what it might have looked like. I had thought about putting a picture of myself in one of my best suits on the screen as a little joke, but figured that'd be even scarier than Nebuchadnezzar's image. So here's an artist's rendering of what it looks like, just so you can think through what he was seeing. The head there is gold, the chest and arms are silver, midsection and thighs were bronze, and apparently so was his miniskirt. Not sure why he was wearing that. Talk about modern day. Its legs were iron, and when you get down to the feet, there's this mixture of iron and clay, right? So there's the image, and that's what Nebuchadnezzar's dream was about. But if you're not careful, you'll miss the most important part, because his dream was not merely about this image. His dream was about something that happened to this image, right? A stone was cut out, not by human hands. So you see this juxtaposition. It's a big word. Look it up. It's a good one. Between a statue, that's a word that's describing something made by human hands. This statue, this thing made by human hands is juxtaposed with this stone, this common stone. It doesn't have any of the ornate gold or silver. It doesn't have any of the obvious power of iron. It's just this common ordinary stone, not made by any human hand. That stone comes, this plain common stone, and it's the centerpiece of the dream because it comes to this glorious, beautiful, ornate, and powerful image, and that stone strikes the feet of the image, and the whole thing falls, and then that stone grinds every part of the image into a powder that's blown away like dust in the wind. And all we are is dust in the... Oh, sorry, that's, that's another sermon another time. All the glory of silver and gold's gone. All the powerful iron is gone. Nothing is left but the plain, common stone. But as it turns out, guys, there's nothing plain or common about the stone, right? Because then Daniel looks, and all of a sudden, that stone becomes a mountain. And not just any mountain. It's a mountain... That fills the whole earth. At the end of the dream, you guys can take that picture down. Good job. At the end of the dream, the only thing that's left is not that image. The only thing that's left is this mountain that was a stone. There's no more gold, no more silver, no more powerful images like iron. Just this mountain and it fills the whole earth. It's the only thing that lasts and it lasts forever. That's his dream, and it terrifies him. He wonders, what does it mean? So let's see what it means. Verse 36, Daniel chapter 2, verse 36 says this. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. Now listen. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwelt, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, 
making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. Okay, so let's just stop there. Okay, first of all, here's what we can see clearly in the interpretation. The head of gold represents Nebuchadnezzar, right? And his kingdom is the kingdom of Babylon. And Daniel says, here's what the dream's telling you, Neb. Your days are numbered because a kingdom is coming behind you and it's going to overtake Babylon. That's the second part of the image, the chest and arms of silver. It's referring to the Medo-Persian army, the empire of the Medes and Persians in 539 BC invaded Babylon under the leadership of King Cyrus. And they, as this prophecy foretold, overcame Babylon and became the world's power. And so while Nebuchadnezzar, this is the interesting thing about these parts of prophecy, while everything in this dream is future-oriented to Nebuchadnezzar, we have the privilege, 2,600 years later, of looking back over human history and seeing moment after moment, this dream was fulfilled. This prophecy started to take place. It happened when the head of gold was replaced by the chest of silver. The Medo-Persian empire overtakes Babylon. Then you keep going. He says there's another kingdom, though, and there's a kingdom that will overcome that second kingdom. It's the third kingdom, and it's the kingdom of Greece. In 330 BC, when Alexander the Great led the Greek empire into the Greek peninsula, they overtook the Greeks. And so the Greek empire stands there as the third kingdom. The midsection of bronze is the kingdom of Greece. Now let's keep reading. Verse 40 says this, And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed With the soft clay. Okay, so here's the fourth kingdom. The next kingdom is a kingdom that's of iron. It's marked by raw strength. And what you see in history's lens is that the next kingdom to emerge on the world scene was the Roman Empire. Rome conquered the Greek peninsula in 146 BC. And it was an unstoppable force. As you guys look back over the world stage, you'll find that Rome loomed large. And what you find inside this prophecy is something really interesting. Remember, Daniel is in Babylon 600 years before the birth of Christ, before any of these events took place. But he prophesies that at the base of that image where that fourth kingdom will be, the kingdom that is Rome, you have two legs that obviously have two feet. And he says, this is a divided kingdom. And you should ask, Does that fit with Rome? And the question is, absolutely. In AD 395, the Roman Empire had grown so large that it became nearly impossible to rule. And so the Roman Empire, 400 years after the birth of Christ, split into two empires. The Eastern Roman Empire and the Western Roman Empire. So just get this real quick. 1,000 years before the fact, Daniel prophesies under the spirit of God that this kingdom, 
the kingdom of Rome would be a divided kingdom. Okay, so I want you to know, in biblical prophecy, we're pretty much in agreement with all evangelical Christians to this point. But there's a bit of confusion that can enter the picture when we go to the next part of this prophecy. And so let's look at verses 42 through 45. And we'll want to focus on what's most clear, but I'm going to show you just a couple of quick things. Verse 42 says this. So the kingdom was divided, and it was divided there. It says it at the feet and the toes. And so we find that Rome divided into two kingdoms in 530 AD or 593 AD. And what you find then is that there are 10 toes that are part of this image. And it's not really clear how that fits in, but there's this interesting thing that he says in verse 44. So let's read Keep reading verse 42. It says, As the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And so this kingdom becomes even further divided In diversity. Verse 44 says this. In the days of those kings. Now hold that in your mind. In the days of those kings. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all of these kingdoms. And bring them to an end and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand. And that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver and the gold. A great God. Now he's talking to Nebuchadnezzar. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain. And its interpretation is sure. Okay, so there's some confusing stuff happening in that portion of the prophecy and things that Christians don't commonly agree out. There are different camps about what this means. For instance, one of the big questions really about this portion is in verse 44 where it says that God will set up his kingdom in the days of those kings. Here's the problem. How many kings are mentioned in this prophecy? A little tricky one there, isn't it? You just read it. There's one king. One king is mentioned, Nebuchadnezzar. The others are specifically only mentioned as kingdoms. And so the question becomes, well, which kings is being referenced here? And there are some who'd say, well, it's all of the kings from all of those kingdoms. Here's the problem. These four kingdoms span a period of well over a thousand years of human history. And so in the days that span over a thousand years of human history, in that moment, he will set up his kingdom. That doesn't seem to make sense, but there is one clue here. Right before he mentions those kings in whose days God will set up an eternal kingdom, verse 42 draws our attention to the toes that I mentioned earlier. Now, let me ask you guys an easier question than the one I just asked you. How many toes does the average person have? I'll give you all the time you need to count. (laughs) Just don't use your neighbor's feet. That'd be really, really weird. 10, right? 10. And the idea of 10 kings is actually really developed in the book of Daniel. As a matter of fact, we'll get there in chapter 7, so we're not going to turn there this morning. But in chapter 7, Daniel has another vision. And he sees four beasts that emerge out of the sea. And the fourth beast has ten ten horns that are on it. And those ten horns represent ten kings. 
And then what you find even later is in the book of Revelation, chapter 13, there's a description. And it's a description of the government that the Antichrist is going to establish on this earth. And the government is described as a beast that comes out of the sea. And it also has ten horns. And on those horns are ten crowns that represent Kings, And so in Daniel and Revelation, you have the beast coming out of the sea that represents the government that will be set up at the end of times by the Antichrist. And it's those 10 kings that make a federation of sorts, a global government that will be set up before the end of all days. So here's how I take verse 44. When he says the kingdom of God will be set up in fullness on the earth forever, never to be removed in the days of those kings. Here's how I interpret that. I take it to be referring to the kings that are going to be a part of a global government that's going to be established when the Antichrist sets up a government on this earth and seeks to oppose almighty God as God. Now, here's the story. We're going to talk more about that as we get to chapter 7 and more specific end times prophecy. But I want you to see that the main point of this dream is crystal clear. The main point, I already told you, was not about this image. And we could spend all of our time setting up charts and timelines all across the back of the stage. And half the room would applaud and think, I finally learned how to preach if I did that. That's not what we're going to do. We're going to look at what is absolutely crystal clear about this vision. God is sending a stone, not made by human hands. And that stone is coming to this earth. And when that stone comes to this earth, it will crush all of the kingdoms of this world and establish a brand new order on the earth, an eternal kingdom of God on this planet. And so the question we should ask is who is that stone? Well, listen to Daniel chapter 7. We will look at this passage. Daniel 7 verses 13 and 14 says this. I saw in the night visions. So here's the dream Daniel has. And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, that's God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him, to the, to the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom So that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Do you see that? That's the same description as someone setting up a kingdom on this earth. Only here he doesn't say it's a stone. He says it's the son of man. And so the stone is the son of man who comes, as Daniel said, in the clouds of heaven and has dominion and glory and power so that all the peoples and nations and languages of this earth will serve him. Does that description sound familiar? I hope it does. Because I want you to hear what Jesus says about his second coming in Matthew 24, 30. And just keep in mind that prophecy from Daniel 7. Jesus said this, Then, at the end of this this age, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So the question becomes, who is the stone? Well, the stone is the Son of Man, and the Son of Man is Jesus. And that gives us the main idea, the big 
point of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Here's what God wants the most powerful man in the world to know. Through the work of Jesus, the kingdom of God will be victorious over the kingdoms of this world. Is that good news, church? You better believe it is. Do you guys ever look around at our world and feel like the cause of truth and righteousness and moral purity is in decline? Does it ever look that way to you? Do you ever look at the scoreboard and feel like one side is tallying up more points in this world than the other side and it's not the good side? you ever feel that way? Do you ever feel like Christianity may be fading and receding into the background and the powers of hell are on the rise in this world? Do you ever feel that way? Well, can I let you in on a little secret? Jesus wins. (laughs) Jesus wins. Jesus wins. Take a deep breath, Christian. Jesus wins. How would you live your life? How would you look at your world? How would you read your news if you were convinced that Nebuchadnezzar's dream is absolutely true and Jesus wins? You know, every now and then I I watch a a game. I haven't watched it in a little while. I probably need to watch it a lot this year. It's a game that was played a couple years ago when the great Cleveland Browns took on the Pittsburgh Steelers in the playoffs, and we crushed them. I mean, we totally annihilated them. There's a reason why the game sticks out in my mind. It's the only good thing that's happened in Cleveland in my lifetime, all right? So we recorded that game. My family watched it live. It was an amazing thing. It was awesome. Actually, at the very beginning, uh, the Steelers got the ball first, and Pouncey, their center, hiked the ball, and it went over Ben Roethlisberger's head into their own end zone, and Cleveland recovered it for a touchdown. Greatest moment in my sporting life. It was awesome. We won the game. We got a little close in the second half. We wanted to toy with them a little bit because we haven't done that in modern era, and we Get to the very end, my family literally jumping around the living room, lost our voices. I think I called in sick and didn't preach the next week because I couldn't. No, I'm kidding. We had this great, we, we kept that game on video. Went back and watched it. Can you, do you know what it was like to watch that game the second time? Just as good as the first because we still beat the Steelers. But there was none of the anticipation in my heart of anxiety None of those moments where they got close, where they got close, there's a big old comeback in the second half, and I thought it's going to happen again. The Browns will be the Browns. It's going to happen. None of that. You know why? Because I knew they won. I watched it with joy. We loved the replay. We cheered. We laughed. I rewound a few of the Steelers' biggest mistakes and watched them all over again multiple times. Why? Because I knew. We were on the winning side. What would change about your life if you believed in an infinitely greater way that Jesus wins? And all of the worry and all of the anxiety and all of the wringing of the hands and all of the headline watching and all of the fear mongering and all of the anxiety inducing things that are being said at every level of every political party, if all of those things were Null and void in the sense that they will not affect the outcome. Jesus wins. The glorious king of heaven. Jesus is coming again. And through the work of Jesus, the kingdom of God will be victorious over the kingdoms of men. And you can already tell that's a great spot to stop. But that's not the end of our text. 
So that's not the big idea. Those of you who are here every week know we always look at the big idea of the text by looking in the rest of the context and seeing what's the point of this passage. Why was it originally written? And what I want you to remember is that that may be the point of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, but there's a point that God wanted Nebuchadnezzar to see that truth. He wanted to give Nebuchadnezzar an inside track on what was going to happen in the future so that Nebuchadnezzar could respond to the truth. This text is inside of a man hearing the truth about the coming of Jesus and the end of this age so that he could respond to that truth. And I want you to see this response. Daniel chapter 2, verses 46 through 49 says this, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering of incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained at the king's court. Okay, so this last paragraph, this little vignette, it wraps up all of what we've seen in chapter 2. And we have the meaning of the dream, but here's what we get at the end. We get this scene of a man who had the dream, who now knows what the dream's about and is encouraged to respond wisely to the truth that was revealed to him. The truth about the coming kingdom and the victory of our God and the greatness of the true king over all kings, including King Nebuchadnezzar. And what you find in this paragraph are two things that happen. And I'll look at them really quickly. First, you see what happens in the life of someone who lives like God is their true victorious king. Daniel, from the very beginning, all the way through the rest of this book, consistency, consistently lives like God is his true king. We're going to see that next chapter. We'll see it the chapter after that. We'll see it the chapter of after that. In chapter 6, Daniel has his life put on the line because he consistently lives like God is his true king. And so God pours out blessing on Daniel. He preserves his life. He causes him to be promoted to one of the highest positions in the entire nation. And that's not to say that blessing is always going to come with the preservation of your life or a promotion at work. Later on in this book, we'll find that there are people who remain faithful to God and they lose their life as martyrs as a result of that. And God still pours out blessing on them. Those martyrs are raised up to new life. They inherit the glorious kingdom of God because God pours out blessing on those who live like he is their true king no matter what. But you also see what happens in the life of someone who does not live like God is their true victorious king. Now, you're going to have to read into this just a little bit in the context of the rest of Daniel. Clearly, you find God's given Daniel or God's giving Nebuchadnezzar an insider's view of what will happen in the future and the truth about who God is. And he has an opportunity, and he kind of takes it here, to bow before God as his true Lord and King. For the king of of Babylon, the the greatest king in the world at this time, to bow before the great king over all kings. And at first glance, it looks like Nebuchadnezzar becomes a true believer, doesn't it? Because he says, listen, truly your God is the God over all the little g-gods of this world. He says, God is the Lord over all the kings 
of the earth. And since Nebuchadnezzar is a king in the earth, you think he might be including himself, right? It looks like we've got a true convert on our hands. But beware. Sometimes politicians say things they don't mean. Shockaroo, I know. You know what happens in the very next chapter, chapter 3, verse 1? Nebuchadnezzar, (laughs) how they say his name in Kentucky, Nebuchadnezzar. He makes an image of gold. So he was the head of gold in his dream that God gave him. He makes an image where the whole thing's gold, right? The hubris, the arrogance. And then he demands everyone worships the image of himself. Here's a statue of me. Bow down and worship. Sound like a true convert? Sounds like a true narcissist, right? You know what happens in chapter 4? Daniel's, or Nebuchadnezzar's walking through his palace. He begins to reflect on something. You know what he reflects on? How great he is. All the great things that he's done. He is filled with pride. He completely leaves out God in his equation. Here's the reality. It doesn't bring a blessing when you live like that. Nebuchadnezzar continues to live like he's the king. He's the Lord. And it doesn't bring a blessing. It brings a curse What you find in chapter 4 is that Nebuchadnezzar loses everything. His sanity, his palace, his dignity, even his kingdom. And so here's the vignette. Here's what we see this story telling us in chapter 2. This great king knows some amazing truths about God. He knows that God's kingdom is going to last forever. He knows the kingdoms of this world are going to fade away. He knows that the gold and silver of this world and the power structures of this world are fleeting treasures that will disintegrate like dust and disappear forever. He knows that there is a stone that's coming and it will prove victorious over everything, including him. And so he better be on that stone's side and not in opposition to him. And he not only knows the truth, you know what he does? He says he believes the truth. He just doesn't live like he believes it. He just keeps on living like he's always lived. And you know what happens? He loses everything as a result So in this last paragraph, we see two men who make two very different choices in the way they live in light of the truth of this dream. Whose choice proved wiser? Daniel's. Clearly, Daniel makes the wise choice. Both men know about God's kingdom. Both men say they believe the truth about God's kingdom, but only one lives like he believes the truth of God's kingdom. And it's the difference between a blessing and a curse. And church, that's our big idea as we close this morning. Wise people live like they believe the truth about God's kingdom. Here's what we need to know, friends. The kingdom of heaven is not about lip service to Jesus It's not about sitting in a room like this and singing songs that are true, hearing sermons that are true, saying we believe what's true, saying amen when someone says something true. The kingdom of God is not about lip service to Jesus. The kingdom of God is about the power of Jesus on display in and through the lives of those who trust him. Listen to the word of God in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 20. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. 
The kingdom of God, friend, is not about learning how to say all the right things. It's not about learning how to parrot your pastor or quote the Bible or tweet and post the very best faith messages. The kingdom of God is about living in the power of the stone whose name is Jesus. It's about living on the rock who is Christ. And the sad reality is there are many people, some in this room, I am sure, who are following Nebuchadnezzar's footprints and don't even realize it. Listen to the warning from Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. He says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, like Nebuchadnezzar, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus says when he comes to this earth to set up his kingdom, many, now I don't know the exact number, but it's many will point to how they said the right things. But Jesus, we called you Lord. We gathered and sang songs. Great are you, Lord. We were talking about you, Jesus. And Jesus will say, listen, I know you did not say you denied me. I know that you did not say that you cursed me. But you never knew me. And then they'll point to all the things they did. What's it a sign of? It's a sign of the fact they trusted in themselves. They trusted in their own good works. They'll point to their works. The things that they did that thought we were, they were so great, so good, so acceptable to God. They will not point to their faith in the work of Jesus. They will not point to the fact that they had placed their faith in the rock of ages who was cleft for us. Who became a hiding place for us in our sin and guards us from the wrath of God. Listen to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It says, for by grace you have been saved. Saved saved from what? From the wrath of God that is coming with the return of Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. Listen, it is by grace through faith alone in Christ alone that we are given entrance into the kingdom of heaven when we live like Jesus is our Lord and our only hope for salvation. When we believe in a way that it changes our life, not by our own work, but by Christ's power. And on the day that he returns, when you meet your king face to face, will your life show that you were trusting in your work or Christ's? That's the question that we need to be asked today. The point of this passage of Scripture is that wise people aren't like Nebuchadnezzar. They don't just bow down when it's convenient or acceptable. They don't just repeat with their mouths certain religious phrases. They live like they believe 
the truth about God's kingdom. Namely, only Jesus allows us entrance into his kingdom. They live like they believe that Jesus is their true king and has the right to tell them how to live. They live with hope because they believe that Jesus is coming again and will be victorious over all things. And so my question for you this morning, friend, is are you ready to meet your king? The stone that the builders rejected is coming again. Jesus is returning to this earth and it could be today. Are you ready to meet your king? Are you trusting in Jesus and only Jesus His work on the cross, his glorious resurrection, his grace poured out on you as his workmanship. Are you trusting in Jesus and only Jesus for entrance into the kingdom of heaven? Or are you trusting your own works, your own religion, your own goodness that the Bible says is like filthy rags before him? Will you bow before Jesus today? Be ready to meet your king. Are you living like Jesus is your Lord over your little kingdom called your life? Like he has the right to tell you how to live. What part of your life are you holding out on Jesus and saying, Jesus, you can do whatever you want with whatever you want except this? Would you lay it down and surrender? Are you living like Jesus is your king? And what about those of you who gather around a table and you talk like doomsday's coming? As though you don't have a glorious, victorious king who's coming back for you and all will be well. Are you living with hope? Are you living with joy? Are you telling others the good news about Jesus? Are you like Nebuchadnezzar in a room like this saying all the right things? Or are you a wise man who truly lives like you truly believe the truth about the kingdom? Jesus is our king and he's coming again. And our whole life is about him. Are you ready to meet your king? Would you bow your heads? Let's go before the Father in prayer. And I want to begin by giving opportunity right now in this moment for anyone who is not trusting in Jesus to call on Jesus Claim the promise that all who call on Christ, believing that though they have sinned, Christ came to this earth to die on the cross to provide forgiveness for their sin. Would you claim that promise? Call on Jesus. Ask him to save you and acknowledge that he is Lord of your life. And for those of you who would say, I am trusting in Jesus. Each week I walk out of a room like this where I've said all the right things. I've sung all the right things. But there are places in my life where I'm not living in submission to Christ. Would you lay that down right now? 
the Holy Spirit has shown you that, would you lay that down and say, Jesus, have your way here. You are my king. For those of you who are living in what feels like perpetual hopelessness because of the headlines you read on a daily basis and the conversations you have with friends and family, would you pray that Jesus would convince your heart that he is coming in victory over it all. That you would leave this room and live this day and every day till Jesus comes again with hope. Would you ask God to give you opportunity to make the truth of the kingdom known to those who are not ready to meet the king? Who's your one? Would you pray for them right now? Ask God for an opportunity this week to share the gospel of Jesus before Jesus comes again. Father, I thank you for the truths of this dream that occurred 2,600 years ago and is relevant for this day. Father, I pray that you would help us to avoid the hypocrisy of a Nebuchadnezzar. God forbid that we would say and affirm and and amen all of the truths about Jesus, but walk out of this room and live as though he is not king. Live as though he is not coming again. Live as though we have no hope. God, I pray that we would live like we believe the truth of your kingdom. God, I pray you'd be exalted as we lay our lives down and lift our eyes up and say, even so come, Lord Jesus, we are ready for you to come again. Be glorified in us, Father. Cause our hearts to be confident and satisfied in you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.